Good morning. It is Sunday, October 25th, 2020. We're continuing our study in the book of Romans. We've called the reign of life. And this morning we're going to look at Romans 8, 14 to 17, uh, under the specific subject, the spirit of adoption. Look at this wonderful, breathtaking doctrine of adoption, that in Christ we are sons and daughters of the living God. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump right in. Lord, we're reminded this morning of your promise in Isaiah that as the rain comes down and waters the earth, so shall your word accomplish that for which you send it. Thank you that rain causes the grass and the trees to grow and the plants that give us food. You give us our daily bread. You declare that you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. How good, how immeasurably generous you are. And we pray together this morning you'd open your hand and by your Holy Spirit open our minds and our hearts to see in the Word of God that which would help us and make us more like Jesus and encourage us and give us renewed hope and peace and confidence and joy and zeal and rest of soul and longing to be with you and to reveal you and to make you known. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. You have given them an appetite for the word of God. You've given their hearts longing to know you and to see you in your word. So, by your spirit, Jesus, assure our hearts that we are indeed sons and daughters of the living God. Take your word, use it, plant it in us. Bring forth wonderful fruit from this time. We ask in Jesus' name and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. I'm going to go to screen share and pull up the handout. And as all the applause goes for how technologically adept I've become, do I hear all the applause? Yay, go Mike. Woohoo! All right, now it's uh, not too hard. Okay, so here we are, the spirit of adoption. We're just marching right through Romans. Here's our verses. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, I'm predicting it'll take at least two weeks to get through this handout, so let's have realistic expectations. Here we go. What is it? <laughs> Yeah, I guess you know me, uh, you know me by now. <laughs> but as someone said, where are we going? What else do we have to do? What's the context for Paul's teaching on the doctrine of adoption? Number one, union with Christ. That's where we began in five. This is where we continue. Union with Christ. What is that? Our faith unites us to Christ so that we can say what is true of Christ is true of us. 
Christ is the Son of God. If you are united to Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. That's true of Jesus. It has to be true of you if by faith you're united to Christ. And so Paul says in 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So it raises the question, how does an orphan become a child of new parents? Adoption. When parents, maybe some of you, have adopted children, when you do so, it is because you choose to, you are not bound to. God chooses to adopt us as his sons and daughters. May it just take our breath away. Now, the background here in Paul's culture is in Roman law. It was a recognized practice for an adult who wanted an heir. They were childless. Someone to carry on the family name. That's a good desire. To adopt. Literally, the Greek means to instate as a son. To adopt a male as his son, usually at age rather than infancy, as is the common way today. That's a quote right out of Knowing God. Uh, J.I. Packer, page 201. If you're going to read any other book besides the Bible, that's not a bad one to start with, Knowing God. If you look at the table of contents and look at how many pages he spends on all the wonderful chapters in that book, the chapter on children of God is the longest chapter in the book. What does that tell you? Well, according to Packer, as we'll see from some quotes I've got for you this morning, this, uh, this is just such an incredibly important doctrine. So I'll ask the question, if that change from being, from being an, uh, an orphan to an, uh, an adopted son or daughter was really dramatic, from a terribly bad situation, and the Bible says that we were under the reign of sin, slavery, the law, condemnation, death, being puppets of the devil, what must the adopted child never forget? Who they really are. And that's why, according to verse 16, God has sent the Spirit himself to bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit could, could testify a lot of things to us. He could, he could tell us how big the earth is. He could tell us what kind of foods are healthy to eat. He, there's a billion things that could tell us. But in this context... Paul is specifically saying what we need most in our struggle with sin, what we need most as we wrestle with our own brokenness, what we need most as we struggle to know God and enjoy God, fight to, to trust God. We have the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is critical to us. And we'll see a little bit more about what that means as we move through the handout. So we're looking at context. Paul is not only unpacking some of the implications of union with Christ, but secondly, he's answering the question, who exactly are those who are putting to death the deeds of the body? That's what we looked at, was it the last couple weeks? What does it look like to, to fight indwelling sin by the power of the Spirit? Well, who are those people that are doing that? They have an identity. Verse 14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Wonderful. He, he, he's pounding into your thinking who you are at the core of your being. You're not just a person being led by the Spirit. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. And third point of context. If you think about the flow of redemptive history, 
And you come into the New Testament and you learn that through union with Christ, we become sons and daughters of God. You realize this is precisely what we would expect. Don't forget your mute buttons, beloved. Don't forget your mute buttons. So if you go back to Genesis 1, Adam is the son of God. To compare the genealogies, Matthew writing to a Jewish audience starts the genealogy of Jesus with Abraham, right, the father of the Jewish people, and he works up to Jesus. Luke, writing for a more Gentile audience, starts with Jesus and traces it back to Adam, the son of God. So Adam is the son of God. Adam and Eve, of course, failed. Jesus, the second son of God, has come, the second Adam, to, to make us what we were originally created to be, sons and daughters of God, enjoying the presence of God in paradise. That's our final destination and our hope. What is Israel called in the Old Testament? The son of God. This is uh, Moses is going to tell Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. What was, what was Adam created to do? Serve God with pleasure in the world. What is uh, Pharaoh going to be told by Moses that he has to do? Let my son go. Israel is the son of God, that he can enjoy God in the land of promise and serve him. Deuteronomy 1.32, in the wilderness you saw how the Lord carried you just as a man carried his son. Now some of you have the privilege of being fathers to sons. When your little boys were younger, some of you mommies, you carried your sons as well. Uh, you know what this image is. You carry your son because he needs you. You carry your son because you love him. You carry your son because nobody needs to tell you to protect him and to provide for him. How much more the Lord uh, carried his people as a, as a man carries his son. Psalm 89, speaking of David, God says, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. In some sense, David knew God as father, but not in the, the full breadth and, and technicolor of which we do so in the New Testament. There, there is a revelation of God as father in the Old Testament, but the, the focus in the Old Testament is much more on the holiness of God in the New Testament. Uh, the, the overwhelming aroma of how we know God is God as father. David's Psalm 103, the gospel according to David, as he, uh, as he depicts the glories of the gospel, he says, just as a father has compassion on his children. Again, parents, you understand this language. You, you, you know this. You can relate to this. Uh, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. How does the God have compassion? How does God choose to relate it to us? As a parent towards his child. Proverbs is written to my son. Proverbs 3.12, the Lord reproves, reproves him whom he loves as, the, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Isaiah 64, but now Lord, thou art our father. We're the work of your hand. One of the things that gives me just a tremendous assurance, because some of us struggle with assurance, right? Is I just go back to the fact that, you know, God created me. God wanted me to exist. God's my father. Uh, I exist because of the human act of my earthly parents, but it was God, the creator, who said, I want you to exist. I've, I find tremendous comfort and confidence and joy and peace in that, not to mention he not only wanted to be a physical creation, but a new creation in Christ, giving me the gift of faith and repentance, drawing me to himself. Jeremiah 3.19 
how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land. This is God's promise to Israel. And I said, you shall call me father and not turn away from following me. What a blessing to call God father and by his constraining hand, the work of the spirit, not turn away from our father. Knowing God as father, becoming unthinkable to our imaginations of turning away from him. John 1.12 Notice that the gospel was both received and believed for as many as received Christ. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We believe in Christ and we receive him, Savior and Lord. Notice that it is only those who have received and believe in Christ who have the right to become children of God. It's very fashionable in many religious circles to say we're all children of God. That's not a very precise way of speaking. The, Bible, the New Testament reserves, reserves the designation of the children of God as exclusively those who know Christ by faith. Yes, Paul preaching on Mars Hill says, we are all his offspring, meaning God as creator has given life to all of us, but it is the distinct and sole privilege of those belonging to Christ who are the children of God. So it irks me a little bit when I hear, hear that said by, we're all children of God. No, we're not. You want to be a child of God, you need to repent and flee to Christ. Matthew seven eleven. if you then, Jesus, to talking about how we have assurance that our prayers are going to be heard and answered, says, if you then, being evil, <laughs> he pulled no punches, Know how to give good gifts to your children, right? By common grace, even though we're evil in our hearts, we kind of, we know how, because we're image bearers, to give good gifts to our children. If you then know how to give, give, good, give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven, read by contrast, not an ounce of evil in him, completely good, absolutely perfect, how much more shall your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him. He gives what is good because he knows what is good because he himself is good. Luke 15, you have the wonderful story of the three lost things, the sheep, the coins, and the lost son. The point of the story is that the wayward son is restored to his father. This is salvation. We've been restored to the father's home. Uh, I won't go into the details, but one of the main points of that parable is the older brother's refusal to rejoice with the return of the son. And we have an older brother in Jesus who rejoices over one sinner who repents. It is Jesus. In fact, in the ancient culture, what should have happened when the, when the son came back into town, by all rights, the townspeople should have killed him for what he did to his father. This is one of the reasons why the father runs out to meet him, to protect him from capital punishment for what he did to his father. And notice that the father pulls up his loins, that he is humiliating himself by pulling up his, his garments so that he can run. God humiliating himself on the cross. The point is, the older brother should have run to the edge of town, met the younger brother, and provided safe passage back to the father's house. This is what Jesus does at the cost of his own life, giving up himself on the cross to bring us back to the father. Okay, well, there's a lot to say about this parable, but the point is, what is salvation? Being restored to the father. Romans 8, 19, we'll see this in a couple weeks. 
uh, the whole creation is waiting for what? What is the movement of all of the earth? It's moving in one direction. It can't wait to see the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation is saying, show us, show us. That means you and me, when Jesus returns and we are instantly transformed in that moment, we meet Jesus in the air, the creation's going to go, finally, there they are, the sons of God. Why? They look like the son of God. We will be in resurrected, sinless, in imperishable, indestructible bodies, the sons of God. All of creation is waiting for that, I think, is it the J.B. Phillips translation says it is standing on tippy toes looking for that great event. Well, we'll talk more about that as we get there, if we ever get there. Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is salvation all about? God in all eternity knew you, he predestined, he brought you to faith and space and time. To make you like what? To make you like Jesus. Because God wants to populate the earth with people that look like his son. That's how much he loves his son. He wants us all looking like his son, conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn. He's incarnated in this world, the firstborn from the dead as well, to have many brothers. What is God doing in salvation? Looking upon his son and saying, I'm going to give you a family from Adam's ruined race. Men and women that you can call brother and sister that you can enjoy forever. That, that's why we're so sure in our salvation because God is going to keep that promise to his son, his son coming and fulfilling all the terms of it. We call it the covenant of redemption. The son coming and fulfilling all the terms of that. Son, if you will go and live perfectly in their stead and die the death their sins deserve. I will raise you from the dead and give you sons and daughters from all of Adam's human race, from all the nations. And this is what Jesus did because he wants a family. And he's, he's, he is claiming that family for himself. Many brothers and sisters. So Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. What's going on in our salvation? God is bringing many sons to glory. Salvation is about sonship. Hebrews 12, we, God tells us, this is a reflection actually on that Proverbs 3 passage, that if God loves you, he'll discipline you, just like your earthly fathers. Why do they discipline you? They loved you. Same for our heavenly father. I love this verse in 1 John 3. See how great a love the father uh, has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. So you think about, okay, now, how do you speak of the love of God for us? He causes his own children. And this is what we are. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and yet it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. So we're, if you just look at me, I don't necessarily look like a son of God. I look like a, 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 a saint who struggles with sin. I look pretty ordinary to you, maybe unattractive in whatever ways. But the reality is, if you are in union with Christ, you're a son or daughter of the living God, and that final revelation is yet to be. And look how Revelation speaks of this. Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and this to, uh, the spring of the water of life without payment. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. So the setting right of what Adam forfeited in the garden, the first son of God, God is going to make all that right. It's no surprise this is the way the Bible ends. I will be his God, he will be my son. So all that to say, 
when you come into the New Testament and and the glory of the benefits of what you have in Jesus' salvation is sonship, it is unsurprising. It is thoroughly expected. I mentioned J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Uh, I've taken the liberty here to put a few quotes from that book in your handout. Uh, there's, uh, this is just some representative doozies, I would call them. So let me just share them with you because he says it better than I could. J.I. Packer writes, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of a holy creator. Wow. The adopted status of believers means that in and through Christ, God loves them as he loves his only begotten son and will share with them all the glory that is Christ's now. Now, if that's true, then it's, very, it, it's, it's tempting to conclude that Christianity seems to promise too much. In fact, if you don't have that sense, you're probably not thinking fully and clearly about your Christianity. Did you hear what he just said? And this is true biblically. God will share with us all the glory that is Christ now. We'll reign with him over all things. This is made clear in the book of Revelation. He has a wonderful paragraph that fatherhood implies authority. God has authority over us. Affection, God loves us as a father loves his kids. Fellowship and honor. Then he, in one part, he says adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even uh, than justification. This free gift of acquittal and peace, uh uh-oh, sorry, sorry, folks. Uh, This free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cross of Calvary, is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge, right? Justification is about justice, It's that we'll never face God as judge because Jesus was judged in our place once and for all. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God could justify us, but not adopt us into his family. This is what Packer is saying. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. He takes us into his family and fellowship. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. And then he goes on to say, and I'm having a hard time, there we go, moving this. The very concept of adoption is itself a proof and guarantee of the preservation of the saints. That's the doctrine. Can you really be sure you're saved? When you go to bed at night, can you be certain if you should die in your sleep, you would wake up in the arms of Jesus? Is there a certainty that we're going to make it to the end? And Packer's showing that the concept of adoption is itself proof and guarantee the preservation of the saints for only bad fathers throw their children out of the family. And God is not a bad father, but a good one. Let me say parenthetically, some of you parents have wrestled with wayward children 
you found it necessary as an act of discipline to ask them to move out. Janice and I have done that. I don't think that made us bad parents. In fact, we were very grateful to hear that the one child that we asked to move out at a certain season in that child's life eventually told a friend that we heard about, said, my parents did the right thing. It's a good thing to hear. I don't believe you're acting as a bad parent if you get to the point where, through tough love, you force the kid to have to make it on their own. You never cease being their father. We told our child when we asked him to find his own place, you can come over here for dinner anytime you want. So I'm not denying that some parents have to do that as an act of loving discipline, and they know in their hearts they're doing it as loving. So I just want to say that parenthetically. Packer says, only bad fathers throw their children out of the family, and God is not a bad father, but a good one. Isn't that great? That's how you can be sure Jesus is going to save you to the end. Because the father's going to make sure he gives you to his son, and the son's going to make sure he gets you because he wants you. Not based on your performance, but on his. And so Packer sort of ends uh, his treatment of this wonderful doctrine. Do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. And let me just say, also as a sidebar, when you pray to Jesus, or you speak to Jesus, feel free to call Jesus brother, Lord, king, savior, friend, redeemer, helper. Call him everything he's revealed as. He is your brother. He's more than your brother. He is king of kings. He's more than that. He's your brother. Hold them all in beautiful balance. Every Christian is my brother, too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it all utterly and completely true. The reason Packer is saying this is because we forget. We lose sight. We, are, we get caught up in, in what a mess we are. We find it impossible to believe how could I be a son of God given I act this way or whatever. We forget, we lose sight. And so he is saying, pound this into your thinking. He also says uh, at the end of the chapter, it's surprising how little literature had been written in the Christian world when he wrote Knowing God on this subject. You you may be aware that a a wonderful pastor uh, named Jack Miller, who who taught at Westminster Seminary in the 70s and started a series of churches in the Philadelphia environment called New Life Churches, Jack... um, uh, is one a PCA pastor who's really, really, really uh, bored into the whole sonship thing, and, and it's, it's had a broad impact in our denomination and in our Christian culture. So if, if, if you're a person who's had, had a lot of thinking and exposure to the glories of sonship and that's become very much your identity, it could be traced back to this dear servant, uh, Jack Miller, who's now with the Lord. He actually was Janice and Mice pastor when we were in seminary. I was very grateful to get to know him. And almost every sermon came down to sonship. <laughs> so, all right, wonderful man, thank you. Uh, so, for example, if you hear in Tim Keller's preaching emphasis on sonship, it's coming from Jack. 
Okay. And Tim would say that. Let's move on to the Spirit's ministry. Um, so we're moving through the handout, the Spirit's ministry, and we want to make this point based on some New Testament passages. Sonship is the core of our relationship with God. Notice how it comes out in this passage in John 8. This is one of the more tense encounters Jesus has with uh, some of the Jewish leaders. Here's what sets up the tension. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, there apparently is something deficient in their discipleship. Now, when John in his gospel talks about saving faith, he almost always uses the Greek pristuo with a preposition, upon or into, believe in, believe upon. And that's this picture of what trust is. It's resting upon Christ, putting your weight upon Christ, believing into Christ, not just head knowledge. So you see here, and right from the opening, there are Jews who believed him. That means there's some sense of lip service being paid to Jesus. They're attracted to his teaching at some level, to his miracles. They're following him, maybe out of curiosity, but, it, but they're not true believers. So Jesus, Jesus uh, provides a test to know if you're a true believer. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is kind of a this is kind of a, a prodding into the belief system, the uh, maybe this superficial faith of these Jewish people that he's going to get into this tussle with. Abide in my word. Now you're truly my disciple. You know the truth. The truth will set me free. How wonderful! Um, you'd think they'd say, "Tell us more about that. We want to be free. What does discipleship look like?" Wow, Holy Spirit, give me an appetite for the truth. Give me an appetite for the word of God. Jesus, unpack for us the various levels of how this freedom plays out in our lives. You could imagine a whole set of questions like, wow, tell us more. They answered him. We're Abraham's offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. Sounds a little defensive there, guys. That's not even true. The history of the Jewish people from Abraham on has been one enslavement to an, from one enslavement to another, even at the very time these people are saying this, they're under a Roman oppression. Anyway, I'm not sure exactly what they're thinking, but they take offense. How can you say we become free? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, now he's going to get at what true freedom is. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. See the real problem. Sort of this superficial attraction to Jesus, but not with a, a, a place in their hearts for the word of Jesus. I speak what I've seen with my father. You do what you've heard from your father. And he goes on to say, you have your father the devil. Um, this, is no, this is not a happy encounter. Thankfully, he concludes by telling us, before Abraham was, I am. He claims to be God. The simple Greek construction, ego, a me, I am. Translated into Hebrew, before Abraham was, Yahweh. I'm Yahweh. This is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. But here's what you need to see. We're no longer slaves to sin. The, sl the slave doesn't remain. Sons remain forever. How do you become a son? If the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So Jesus has come, son of God, to do for us 
slaves, what we could never do for ourselves, set us free from the tyranny of the devil, the world, and sin, and make us his brothers and sisters. Okay, more to say about that. Let's move on to John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit hasn't been poured out yet. He will at Pentecost. And look at this wonderful promise, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How is Jesus going to come to them? In the Spirit, the Spirit of Sonship. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me through the resurrection because I live, you will live, you will live because of the resurrection. And that day you'll know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. The Spirit will bear witness. So the, 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 the solution to orphan living, that's another word for being alienated from God, being dead in your sins, etc. The solution is is Jesus sends the spirit of truth to you to convince you of the truth of the gospel. You believe in Christ. You're no longer an orphan. You're a son. I'm going to talk in detail about the contrast between those two ways of thinking at the end of the handout. In all likelihood, it's going to be next week. Well, it will be next week. Which will be pre-recorded, incidentally. I have to pre-record it for y'all, but it'll be up by the grace of God. Another technological advancement if I get a pre-recording up sufficient for you next week. John 17, 22. Jesus' high priestly prayer. We, we, get to, we, get to, we get to put our ear over the shoulder of Jesus praying out loud to his Father. It's interesting when I'm reading in um, Matthew now and there's a number of times Jesus steals away to pray like after the death of John the Baptist. He, he has to go be with his Father alone. He, he, right, he's probably just devastated, his cousin getting his head cut off, so young in life. Anyway, Jesus praying, Jesus praying. You wonder, what's he talking to his father about? Here's a prayer that is recorded for us in the upper room of what Jesus is talking to his father about. And among the many things he prays, you actually get prayed for, beloved, because Jesus prays that those who will believe through the message of the apostles, he prays for their unity, he prays for a unity, and we believe because of the message of the apostles. A little bit more about that in, in the sermon this morning. So Jesus prays, the glory that you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I loved you. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am to see my glory and have uh, that you have given me because you've loved me from the foundation of the world. Here's this pleading of Jesus to have his brothers and sisters in his presence. Remember back in 14, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. I want you where I am. And he's praying for his father to get us to be with him. He wants this family of brothers and sisters. But it raises the question, what is that glory he refers to in verse 22? The glory you've given me, I've given to them. What is that? Might be a lot of different ways of answering that question. I think a very fair way to answer it is the glory of being the Son of God. We will be resurrected sons of God and daughters of God in resurrected bodies. So Jesus is praying, I believe, that we'll know something of the glory. Him, 
relishing being the son of God. We relishing this glory, being sons and daughters of God. I think that comes out in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. I don't know, was it a couple years ago? I I preached through this on the order of Salutis because it's all in this magnificent passage, but look at how Paul alludes to this. 